We're going to be going through the Bible here tonight. There's going to be a lot of verses that we're going to cover tonight um, that you may want to make a list of as we go. Uh, You know, recently, uh, and it's been a few weeks now, uh, since we've concluded our study in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, it felt incomplete to me. Uh, Not that 1st and 2nd Thessalonians themselves are incomplete, but as we go through those letters, we deal with things like the rapture of the church, the time of tribulation, the Antichrist, we, we started to touch on aspects, of course, of the second coming, a little bit of the millennial reign, uh, not much of a new heaven and a new earth. And it's for that reason that I felt like, man, this just doesn't feel like we're done yet. We are living in the last days. Some people, when they hear that, they go, yes, amen, yes, we are. This is time. This is, we've been waiting for this, right? And we still don't know. Um, the Lord could return at any moment. We understand that. And there's some people, of course, that hear that and it brings a sense of anxiety, but it's it's especially for individuals who, who maybe feel a sense of that, that it's even more important for us to be, uh, for us to thoroughly understand the events that await us still. To, as believers, have a very good knowledge of what do the end times hold? What will all of this, how will it all unfold? What will it look like? Scripture gives us answers to many of our questions. But sadly, the church today, believers today, are largely ignorant on some of the key things of the end times, especially things like the difference between the rapture and the second coming, uh, an understanding of the things like the millennial reign, uh, the, the, the new heaven and a new earth. And, and these are things that we ought to be informed of. And it's for that reason, again, that I say, man, we, we just weren't there yet. And so tonight, the, the basis of our study tonight will be Revelation chapter 19 and 20. And so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles to Revelation chapters 19 and 20. Yes, we will get through both of those chapters here tonight, but we're going to consider some other supporting verses that give us insight into the second coming of Jesus Christ, as well as the millennial reign. Next Wednesday, we'll consider chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation and the new heaven and the new earth. And then I feel like maybe, okay, we're where we need to be as far as that topic is concerned, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. A uh, little bit of a teaser. Uh, we will be going to the Old Testament next on Wednesday nights, all the way back to the book of Genesis. Um, and so we'll be kicking that off in the month of August. So you can look forward to that as well. All right, so let's pray before we jump into his word. Father God, we pause here tonight, Lord, and we give you thanks as always, Lord, for your word. It is a treasure And Lord, we don't even, we can't even begin, Lord, to understand the depths of it. When we say that it is a treasure, Lord, that, uh, Lord, we we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. Uh, Yet, Lord, uh, we we come to you again and we come to your word again, seeking to know more and to learn more and to to study, Lord. And and, uh, Father, we just ask that you'd bless our time in it. Uh, It's been a privilege, Lord, to be together already with believers, uh, worshiping you in song, and now we do so in study of your word. And so, Lord, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you'd give us understanding here tonight of uh, topics, Lord, that in reality, I don't believe are that difficult for us to understand, but are often avoided. And uh, so, Lord, we ask for your grace, your mercy, as we consider these topics here tonight. And, and give us, Lord, hearts that are excited, Lord, for what is in store. For in these last days, Lord, we're called to look up, to look to you, to anxiously anticipate your return for us, Lord. And so I pray that we would be a people that would do just that, that would be anxiously awaiting you, Lord Jesus. 
And so, Father, bless our time now in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here we go. Uh, Let's begin now at the beginning of Revelation in chapter 19. Let's go ahead and read together verses 1 through 10. Now this, remember, is John the Apostle. He has been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Uh, John is the last remaining disciple of of Jesus Christ, one of the original apostles. Uh, All the others at this point have been martyred for their faith. Uh, As I've often mentioned over the last several weeks in our study of this, as we've touched on Revelation, it is not because they haven't attempted to take John's life. They've attempted to martyr John, but the thing is, is he wouldn't die. Okay, they, they, in a couple of different ways they've attempted to take his life and he just, he just wouldn't die. It's almost as if the creator God of the universe had his hand upon him, divine protection over him. It's almost as if scripture says it's appointed a man once to die. And that time was not yet for John because God had plans for John, I believe specifically to give him this revelation that he would write it down and that he would share it with the churches such that we would have it today. And so because he wouldn't die, because they were sick and tired of him, uh, more or less, he was exiled out to the Isle of Patmos. And he's out there by himself. And as you can read at the beginning of Revelation, here he's, he's on the island and he hears a voice, a voice that he recognizes, a voice that's familiar as he turns and he sees the glorified Jesus Christ, a man whom in one respect he recognizes, but yet as he gives us a, a description of the, of the appearance of Jesus, he's, he's different, he's, he's changed, he's, he's glorified. And, and so now it's been uh, 19 chapters of, of revelation at the beginning there. It's Jesus gives him uh, the letters, the words to the churches. And then in chapter four, it seems as if the church sort of disappears. And he goes into a description of the tribulation, of the first half of the tribulation, and then the second half of the tribulation, the events that give rise to the Antichrist, uh, God's wrath being poured out. And now uh, we have come to a place where in chapter 19, the tribulation is coming to an end. And here in the first part of this, in the first 10 verses here, we see the end of the tribulation and we see now it being brought back, the, the church is being brought back into view in these first 10 verses. And it says, after these things, now note here, John, he's writing in sequential order. Over and over again, and we'll see this even through chapters 19 and 20, uh, John will write, and then, and, and then, and then, and, and then, and, and that should give us an understanding here that so many people want to allegorize the book of Revelation, or they want to make it symbolic. Uh, they want to suggest that it's not really what John uh, saw, or it's not really what's going to happen. It means something else. But the fact is, the way that John writes is he's giving us events. Now, yes, there are times when John, in his limited understanding, seeks to describe something for us that may not be exactly what it is, but it doesn't mean that the book as a whole is not a literal event that will happen. Again, as John describes things in this chronological order, if you will. And so here he says, after these things, after the the description of the vision that he's seen of the time of the tribulation, he says, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. 
because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now I want us to pause there for a moment. Of course, there's many things that we're reading there, some of which may not uh, immediately make sense to you if you're not familiar with Revelation. This here is in the throne room of heaven. There's a great, great worship service that has been happening here in the throne room of heaven for a period of time. At this point for about seven years, which I suspect for us, the church, as we find ourselves there, it will feel so much faster than seven years once our minds begin to grasp eternity and the greatness of it. And we won't have time tonight. There's so much that we're going to cover here tonight that we just won't even have time to go into with greater depth. Uh, The teachings of Revelation, the last time I went through Revelation, are available online if you want to go back and look at that. or listen to that. What I want us to focus on here for a moment is what we see there in verse 7. Now again, the end of of the time of the tribulation is now coming to an end. Here John is brought back into uh, the throne room of heaven, or I should say the throne room of heaven is brought back into view. There's this worship service that's going on. There's really celebration over the fact that that, uh, uh, God's judgment uh, has been carried out on Uh, those who are wicked through this time of tribulation. And it says here in verse 7, let me read it again, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Who is his wife? The church. It's the church, it's us. We are the bride. He is the bridegroom. We are his wife. Now it's interesting here because it says that his wife has made herself ready. And it goes on to say in verse 8, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Now this, of course, was an angel that was speaking to John at this point. And it says here in verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And really what this means here is that John is so overwhelmed by what he's taking in. John is so overwhelmed by what he's seen, by what he's experienced here. His natural reaction, the only thing he feels like he can do, especially as this angel here declares that we should be glad and be rejoicing, and, and he's hearing now of blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the culmination. This is something that for John, he's been waiting his entire life for. He's given his life for this. He would have died for this, and his natural reaction is just to fall at the feet of the angel and just worship. But of course, the angel says here, no, 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 you don't worship me. 
you worship God. But, but again, John is so overwhelmed at this moment, and we, we certainly can appreciate that. We can only imagine what it is that John is experiencing at this point, what he's seen. But again, bring into view here the very things that he's considering. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. What this means here now is he has come to the place where the church is, is, is realizing fully now the extent of the relationship with Jesus Christ that will be enjoyed for eternity. We can't even begin... In, in our lives today to grasp the significance of what it will be like. We know our own lives, right? Those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know what you've been brought from. Christ is dear to you because you know that he's your Savior. You know that you lived your life in one way before Christ, and now you live your life a different way. You, you have a sense of, uh, of what Jesus has done in your life, how he's changed you, how he's transformed you, how he's redeemed you. You have a sense of how active God and through the power of his Holy Spirit is in your life, his provision for you, his, his care for you. And so we, we love the Lord. But yet there is still so much more that's yet to come. There's so much more that's yet to happen. That for John now at this point, he's saying, here now the righteous are being called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now this is significant for us. Because this, this marital language, we know this that throughout Scripture, marriage is, not, marriage is not a government institution, okay? The government today seeks to have control over marriage, but the fact is marriage is designed by God. It's ordained by God. It's a relationship that He created, and it goes back to the very beginning of time. It goes back to the garden in Adam and Eve. And marriage is designed in such a way that it's intended for us to see the relationship between Christ and the church. And so marriage is in fact something that's incredibly sacred still today despite the ways that we have profaned it because it's intended to be a picture between his church his bride and Jesus Christ and so when marriage on this earth is done well when when marriages are healthy uh, when marriages function the way that God designed them to function we can see within it a wonderful picture of Christ and the church and so now it comes to this place where we're seeing this marriage language continue and it's important for us to understand this. Let's go back for a moment to consider ancient Jewish marriage uh, rituals and tradition. There's a few processes, there's steps that happens in the Jewish marriage process. Typically people were married at a fairly young age. Um, marriages in some respects were transactional, particularly on the front end. Um, the idea of a uh, marriage being very expensive for the father of the bride was not so in Jewish culture. It was quite the other way around, uh, that there would be a dowry that was paid for uh, a daughter, for a bride. And so it was more on the part of the groom that it was in his family, that it was fairly expensive. Uh, and this process was entered into at an early stage, and it begins with the marriage covenant when the father would pay for or make a down payment on a relationship between the bridegroom and the bride. There's similarities there, is there not? Our father, who, who has made a covenant, who has entered into a covenant between, and making a covenant between the bridegroom and the bride that we know today. We know that there is a relationship that we have entered into with Christ that's not yet been fully realized. And so it begins with the marriage covenant. And then it doesn't immediately happen there, okay? It can, be, it can sometimes be many years 
before the wedding itself that that covenant is entered into. Now, once that covenant is created, oftentimes what happens there is the bridegroom may be a part of that initial covenant. There may be a meeting. There may be some you know, interaction there, uh, getting to know each other a little bit, establishing some rapport. But then the bridegroom is going to leave. Where's the bridegroom going to go? He's going to go back to his father's house. What is he going to do while he's there? He's going to prepare a place for his bride. He's going to prepare what's called the bridal chamber. Do you remember Jesus saying, I go that I might prepare a place for you, right? But he says, I'll come back, right? And so there is a time when the bridegroom will go back to fetch, as it were, his bride. Do you know that the bride doesn't know when the bridegroom's going to come? Seems unfair, right, ladies? You gotta prepare for this. But it's a surprise. And typically, when the bridegroom comes, he comes with somewhat of an entourage, and there even is a shout that's given announcing that the bridegroom is coming. Similar, perhaps, to a trumpet, right? That might sound indicating that the bridegroom is coming for his bride. Now, when he comes for his bride, he will take her back to his father's house wherein she will go through a ritual cleansing process to be prepared for the wedding ceremony. Starts to bring into view here where it says, and it was granted her to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so uh, this time now has come and the the bride goes to be uh, Uh, prepared ritually for the wedding and then is the wedding ceremony and the consummation of the marriage and then the marriage feast. The marriage feast itself can last up to seven days, similar to seven years, right? As Jesus, the bridegroom, comes for his bride to take her back to his father's house for a period of seven years, that time of tribulation, at which point at the end of that is the marriage supper that everyone enjoys together as sort of the the completion of that marriage process. Similar here now, John hears, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the end of these seven years of tribulation, we see in here again God's design for marriage, how he ordained it, and how it parallels closely the events of the end times. I mention this here because this sort of sets the stage. This is now the end, as I've already mentioned, of the tribulation, and now we enter into his second coming. Okay. Now remember, as we've studied before, do we have that timeline? Can we throw that up quick that we've seen before? There it is. Now, remember the 70 weeks of Daniel up there is, is really about Daniel's prophecy. Um, Early on here, we see that there are uh, the 70 weeks of, uh, of Daniel are uh, in total 483 years that have been completed. That's 69 of those 70 weeks. There is one left, one more period of seven. That serves as the time of the tribulation, one seven-year period or three and a half years for the front half of the tribulation and three and a half years for the second. We're living right now in the church age, that time between the cross, Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Uh, 
up until the time. So we are anxiously anticipating that next imminent event, which is the rapture, which goes then into the time of the tribulation. At the end of those seven years, as we've just discussed, is what's described there in Revelation by John, marriage supper of the Lamb. And what we're about to read now is the account of the second coming. Remember, these, we believe, are two separate events. That is not consistently believed and held to throughout the church today. There are differing views on the rapture, but I believe a literal interpretation of the Bible, a literal reading of the Bible, tells us that there is a rapture, and we'll continue to consider that through tonight. And so this is a second event, a second distinct event, which is the second coming and the battle of Armageddon. So let's read that together here in Revelation 19 and verses 11 through 16. A powerful passage of scripture. It says, Now I saw heaven opened. This is John writing, And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. What was the first coming? What was his first advent, his first coming? Yes, it's Jesus, but when? When was it? You guys know it. When he was born, right? Christmas. Baby Jesus, born in a manger. <laughs> That's the third day song. I like that. David will never play it at Christmas time, though. He just keeps, he keeps ignoring me. Uh, it's actually one of my wife's favorite Christmas songs. That's why I'm trying to get him to play it. But, you know, <clears throat> anyhow, that's the first advent. That's when Jesus came the first time. It's not to be mistaken with the rapture. Why do we not consider the rapture one of Jesus' coming? Because he doesn't come. He doesn't come all the way, at least. He calls us to meet him in the air where we will forever be with him. This now is his second coming. And that's the other thing, is the world as a whole, unbelievers, that is, at the time of the rapture, will not see him. He will not be seen. That's why there's going to be all these crazy conspiracy theories about what happened to all those crazy Christians. When, boom, they're gone. Okay? Aliens took them. That's, rest assured, CNN's going to report that. Okay? There's no doubt about it. Aliens have taken so many people. Right? Where did they go? It'll be a scary time, for sure. That's not to make light of that, certainly. But it's in the second coming that all will see. That's why it's called his glorious second coming, because all will see it, and he will come in his full glory. You know, when Jesus came the first time, he didn't come in a way that we would expect a Savior to come. Now, there were some who had insight into who he was, some who very early on came to worship him, but the majority of the people dismissed him. In fact, they sought to kill him and did because Jesus came humbly, the Passover lamb, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here, as he comes on this white horse with a sword protruding from his mouth, and that's one of those things, right? One of the things that we could look at there and say, 
how's that work? Like, is this going to be this giant sword coming out of Jesus' mouth? Like, that's kind of freaky. Rest assured, people who see this happen, they're going to be thinking, this is kind of freaky. There's no doubt about that. Does it look exactly like a sword coming out of his mouth, the way it's described by John? Well, yeah, but that's one of those things that we could look at here and go, John's doing his best to describe what it is that he's seen in this moment, okay? Now, see, here he is, Jesus coming, his glorious second coming, and he is not coming the way that he came the first time. It says here that he's coming to judge and to make war. The first time he came as the pure, spotless lamb, the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The second time he comes, he's coming as a lion. It says that he has many crowns upon his head. This crown is different than the crown that he wore before. There's the Stephanos crown, which is the victor's crown, and there's the diadem crown, which is the crown of a king. What Jesus is wearing here is the diadem crown. He's wearing the crown of a king. He is coming this time as a king, ready to rule the nations. And guess who's with him? We are. The church. The church is with him. Note here that it says, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Go back a few verses earlier, right, to verse 8. And to her, the church, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. See, we're prepared now to come back with him in glory. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the, in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend him. it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And here it is, as his name is called the Word of God. This is Jesus in his glory returning to earth. We're coming with him, and yes, again, it says, and now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. Because at this point, the nations are gathering together to him. They're coming together for war. They're coming for war. We'll read that here shortly in verses 17 and following. Now, I want us to consider a few things here tonight, because, of course, we want to know more about the second coming. Now, the second coming, is we have already stated, is a distinctly separate event from the rapture. It's also been noted, a lot of times we consider prophecy, various prophecies in and throughout the Old Testament. His second coming is the first prophecy that we're given in Scripture. A lot of people overlook that. And they, and they overlook that because it's mentioned in sort of a unique way in the book of Jude. In Jude, right before Revelation, in verses 14 and 15, it says something that's fairly unique. In Jude, verses 14 and 15, only in one chapter, it says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You see, it takes Jude here referencing Enoch in a way in which we don't really have the, the original uh, book of Enoch. It's considered today what we have as an extra-biblical text, but the fact that Jude references this here specifically validates for us that Enoch, in fact, said these things. 
How Jude knew it and where Jude got that from, we don't know entirely, but we know that Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. That's speaking to the second coming. And once again, who are the ten thousands of his saints? His church, his bride coming with him. Okay? Now, the second coming, differently than the rapture, is both an Old Testament and a New Testament concept. In our Q&A earlier this week, I mentioned something called progressive revelation, meaning that God didn't give us everything right in the beginning. His word as a whole is something that's a product of his progressive revelation, revealing things throughout time. In the Old Testament, the second coming is spoken of consistently. We'll, We'll look at many of those verses. In the New Testament, it's spoken of as well, but it's not until the New Testament time that we begin to get insight into the rapture. And Jesus gives way to much of that, of our understanding of that. So we see the first prophecy of the second coming there referenced in Jude in verses 14 and 15 as it pertains to Enoch. We know that the second coming is consistently spoken of in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. What we also know, based off of what we've read here, but also Jesus gives us insight into this himself, is that the second coming immediately follows the tribulation. We see that in Matthew in chapter 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus gives us insight into that. In Matthew 24, verses 29 through 30, as he says this, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? That is a description that Jesus gives us of his second coming. He says immediately after the tribulation. He says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see him. They will all see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. See, this is another one of those verses here where when people want to say, oh, yeah, I respect Jesus. Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a moral man. Uh, Certainly, I respect the teachings of Jesus, but, you know, I just don't believe in him as, as God. Well, listen, you can't say that because if Jesus said stuff like this and he wasn't actually who he said he was, and he's an absolute crazy lunatic who, as C.S. Lewis, and I quoted on Sunday, said, we should lock him up. If I came in here, and generally speaking, you guys thought, hey, yeah, Pastor Brennan's a good guy, good teacher, you know, a moral guy, says some good things, and, and I said to you tonight, and, and by the way, you're going to see me eventually coming from the, the clouds, and I'm going to have power, and, I'm gonna, and I basically describe myself as God, coming, and you're going to go, oh yeah, you know, he's, he's a solid teacher. No, you're not. You're going to say, that guy lost it. He lost it. He, he doesn't, he's not of sound mind any longer, right? We can't say those things about Jesus. No, we either have to dismiss him, Or we have to go, wait a second, there's something to this guy. And send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now who are his elect? Who's he gathering together after the time of the tribulation? Can people get saved during the time of the tribulation? Yes, they can. That does give us hope, right? For some who go through the time of the tribulation. And so he'll gather together the elect, much of which is Israel, okay? This is a time for him to do a work in his chosen people, Israel. Okay, so it's immediately following the tribulation. And it is before the millennial reign. 
We're going to come back to that one here shortly. It's before the millennial reign, pre-millennial. We believe in a, I teach and I believe in Calvary Chapel's whole, believes in a pre-millennial second coming of Jesus Christ, before the millennial reign. Okay? Fifth, we believe that it is a literal coming of Jesus. Not a, not, it's not figurative. It's not some sort of spiritual metaphor. And that may seem obvious at this point, the way I've described it, but the fact is we have to understand, and I believe that all must agree on this point. I really do. There are certain things that we can say, you know what, we can agree to disagree on that. It's not an issue of salvation. We can have fellowship. We can say, hey, we're, you know, as it pertains to the rapture, I have close friends, brothers and sisters in Christ who have a different view on the rapture, and that's okay. Not an issue of salvation. I don't need to say, oh, you, you, don't, you clearly don't know Jesus. No, that's not it. But I am of the opinion that if somebody denies a literal return of Jesus Christ to this earth, that they've gotten something seriously wrong. Let's look at Acts chapter 1 for a moment, verses 9 through 11. Acts 1, 9 through 11. You know this passage. Acts 1, 9 through 11, this is where Jesus ascends into heaven. This is his ascension, okay? He has uh, been resurrected. He's been on the earth now for a period of time. He's been seen by many. He's been teaching. He's been instructing. And now it's time for him to go, okay? And in verses 9 through 11, we read, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Now notice here, as it pertains to Luke and his recording of these events in the book of Acts, he didn't say it was sort of like he ascended into heaven but he didn't really. It just sort of looked that way. It was just kind of the way that we perceived it. He doesn't say that, does he? No, he's describing how Jesus ascended into heaven, okay? And here now, the two men stood by them in white apparel, verse 11, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Note, this same Jesus, not a different Jesus, not somebody who might look like Jesus, this same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That tells us right there that these angels said, the very same Jesus who you've come to know is going to return. In the same manner that he came up, he's going to come down. That's pretty awesome, right? It tells us that it is a literal return. Okay, Not figurative, not spiritual, though trust me, it will be a spiritual event. There's no doubt about that. Okay? So I believe that we all need to agree on that. And that is the wonderful thing when we can find unity as the body of Christ within the church, that we can come together and we can say, okay, you may have a different view on the rapture, you may have a little bit of a different view on the millennium, but we can all agree, Jesus is coming back. And we're looking forward to it. However it is that he returns, he's coming back. We can have unity on that. Now, let's continue to move on in Revelation in chapter 19, verses 17 through 21. We see here the continuation of the second coming and the battle of Armageddon. And we'll consider here some of the other things that then happen as this occurs. In verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Now, this particular supper is not a super enjoyable supper. Okay, This one's different than the marriage supper of the Lamb. In verse 18, it says that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, 
the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, that's Jesus, who they've come to make war against, who sat on the horse and against his army, that's us. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. We've got two individuals there, the beast and the false prophet. You've got the beast, which is the Antichrist, and the false prophet who accompanies the Antichrist. The Antichrist himself will be more of a political leader who will deceive many in that time and the false prophet who will function somewhat as a religious leader and both of them we see here will be defeated. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is a pretty horrific vision now that John gets of this particular moment in this battle. <clears throat> the battle of Armageddon, though we don't know exactly the length of time, I suspect will be over fairly quickly. You could say it's a bit of an unfair fight. Uh, and Jesus in his glory uh, with the sword coming out of his mouth. And of course, when I say unfair, I simply mean because his power is so much greater than anything that they could amass together. But trust me, it's very much equitable in terms of the mercy and the forbearance that Jesus has demonstrated waiting and waiting and waiting and giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to the tribulation itself being an opportunity for many to get right with God. And so those who are killed here, the exception of the beast and the false prophet who are cast alive into the lake of fire, all the rest of them are killed. And it seems to be based off of what we see in scripture that it's really with a matter of a word from the mouth of Jesus. And he just simply speaks it and they're destroyed. So many that all of the birds that are called together have their fill of the flesh of those who are uh, destroyed there. And so what we see here is in this passage specifically is that this, this again is the battle of Armageddon. Now this is the point when Jesus in his glorious second coming now uh, defeats the nations that have gathered together to make war against him and against his saints. And then as we move into chapter 20, we read in the first three verses, then I saw, and, and notice here again, look what John is doing, then this, then I saw this, then I saw this. He's giving us a chronological event of these times. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. I want us to pause here for a moment and consider a couple of things. One, when we think about what else happens at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ, this is one of those key things. The Antichrist, the false prophet, cast into the lake of fire, Satan, the devil, who has long been present in this world from the very beginning at the time of creation, will now be bound in a pit. Okay? Satan is bound. This is the moment when everybody can go, woo, and cheer, and everything else, right? Because our adversary, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, is no longer able to do that. He's bound. That's key, okay? That's important. That's an event in, in the future that we should be saying, all right, I'm looking forward to that. Here's the second thing. A lot of people want to talk about, and we'll consider some of these here in a moment, that there isn't actually a thousand year reign or the fact that they want to say that the Bible doesn't talk about a millennium 
Well, no differently than the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, but we trust that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there, though the Bible may not use the word millennium, which simply means 1,000 years, that it does talk about a thousand-year reign, and it begins right here. Well, it doesn't just begin right here, but it's very clear right here in chapter 20. In fact, it mentions it six times in chapter 20. Can we look at it again there? For a what? Thousand years. That seems pretty clear to me. For a thousand years. And he cast him, it says, into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Seems pretty literal to me. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. We'll come back to that. Okay? So Satan is bound here. He's bound for a thousand years. Now, some of the other things that are happening here, and you can just write these down. We don't need to turn there for the sake of time. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, gives us a picture of some of the things that are happening at this particular time. It's a passage of Scripture that we get from Isaiah there that talks about turning their, their, their weapons into plowshares. Why? Because they won't need them anymore. We'll be, as it were, kind of going into this millennial reign, going back to what we know as an agrarian society. There's no more need for war. There's no more need for weapons. Build a plow instead and go out and work your fields. Okay? Those of you that like to till the land, certainly seems as if there's a good bit of that that's happening during the time of the millennial reign. Some of you may be saying, I have no idea what to do. <laughs> I can't even, I can't plant a bean. I don't know what to, I don't know what to do, right? Some of you, you have, anybody have hobby gardens right now? They've really sprung up, no pun intended, uh, during the uh, time of, of COVID quarantine, right? A lot of people doing their hobby gardens. A lot of people saying, I just don't know what I'm doing. What's happened to my peppers and my tomatoes and these different things? I don't know what it's going to be like other than it seems as if there's going to be this, this sense of, of working the land again the way that God intended. Adam was a gardener, right? And so that's a wonderful thing that we can kind of think about, man, what's this, what's this all going to look like? Okay. Um, so Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4 says that. Matthew 25 gives us an, in, an, an interesting perspective into God separating, what? Two animals, sheep and the goats. This is a point in time. What is Jesus coming to do? He's coming to judge, right? Is everybody then going to go into the millennial reign? No. Be confident. You guys know this. You can answer me. No, not everybody's going to go. We just talked about wicked people, people that have died, right? That's the process that as Jesus comes, he's going to come in righteousness and in judgment and he's separating out true believers. Those who have gone through the time of the tribulation, who have believed on him, some of which have been killed and martyred for their faith during that time, that he will bring into the millennial reign. Okay? So let's read on here in Revelation 20 and verses 4 through 6. It says, And I saw thrones and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So this is the tribulation saints. There it is again, a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. The fact that he says here this is the first resurrection goes back to those who were, in fact, resurrected. Um, the rest of them, the dead, were not alive again until the end of the thousand years, um, at which point is the great white throne judgment um, when uh, the rest of them will be raised and, and judged. Uh, blessed and holy 
verse 6, is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for how long? A thousand years. It seems like there's this theme of a thousand years, right? I'm of the opinion that we can have confidence in that. Now, as I mentioned, and we'll touch on this here now, and we've got a slide to go through, or th- maybe three slides, I think is the way we're doing this. Um, there's some different views on the millennium, on that thousand-year reign. Again, some people believe that the thousand years is figurative, and then there are people who sort of disagree on exactly when the thousand years is going to occur. As I mentioned, uh, we are a pre-millennial view of the thousand-year reign. And so this would be the first view, pre-millennialism. Now, as I mentioned before, we are here in the church age. There's the cross, right? We're living in this time now. We're anticipating the rapture, which will happen here. Then comes the time of the tribulation and the second coming, as we've been talking about here this evening, in the first resurrection, which I just mentioned, of the tribulation saints. So that is the second coming here before this time of the millennium, this thousand years, at which point will come the second resurrection of those who will be judged at the great white throne judgment. We'll talk about that one later on, probably next week. You don't want to be at the great white throne judgment. You want to be at the Bema seat. And again, we'll talk about that more next week. This is for those who will be ultimately cast into hell for what then comes is all of eternity. Okay, that's the first view, premillennial. So that's the one that I believe that, that Jesus is coming here, his second coming, before the millennium. Let's go to the next one. This is an amillennial view. I'm basically meaning that uh, they don't believe that this is really what it's described as in Scripture. Okay, uh, amillennialism uh, speaks of that first resurrection happening at spiritual conversion meaning when you have become a Christian. So the church age sort of parallels the millennium. And so it's not a real millennium in terms of a thousand years, but rather we are in the time of the millennium right now. And so then you would begin to interpret aspects of scripture that way. So some of the description of what we see for the millennium, the millennial reign, which as we'll consider here shortly is a time of incredible peace and prosperity suggests then that the church is going to be a part of bringing that peace and prosperity to earth and that we will continue to just as a church do so more effectively and better and better and better to where we basically usher in eternity in heaven in his second coming. That Jesus will come at that time when his church has done, and some would probably describe this differently who might be, maybe hold to that view, but basically we, when we've done such a good job at making this place such a wonderful, beautiful place. You struggle with that at all? We're really failing at that job, if that's how this is going. I mean, we're really struggling with what we've been called to do. That may be true. (laughs) The church today may actually be struggling to do a lot of things that we are called to do, but I do not believe that the millennium is happening currently and that we're in a process of basically redeeming the earth on our own in such a way we'll, we'll, we'll bring Jesus back. Let's go to the third view then. Post-millennialism. Similar in terms of this continual progress that's happening. First resurrections happening at spiritual conversion. Millennium kind of paralleling the church age. Continual progress here. And then his second coming happening there. Not that different than amillennialism. Okay, pretty similar there. As you look at the Word of God, we want to, I would say generally speaking, 
interpret scriptures literally. That should be our aim. And to do so from Genesis all the way through Revelation. In fact, it's those, I think, oftentimes who begin to take somewhat of a symbolic or figurative view of scripture. And what comes from that is basically an erosion of different truths within scripture, a willingness to start to disregard things that are have formerly been considered really sound doctrine and uh, answers in Genesis for example an organization they have the creation museum they've got the ark I mean the whole premise of answers in Genesis really started with it's the first book of the Bible we're going to treat Genesis as a lit we're gonna we're gonna look at it as a literal book a literal six days of creation because if we don't then that's the foundation for everything else in scripture and if we don't hold to that then other aspects of scripture are just going to begin to erode because your foundation isn't solid right and you're going to be quick to then go, oh, well, this doesn't really mean this, and this doesn't really mean this, and sure, we can go ahead and accept this and accept this in the church and so on and so forth. And then you find yourself, you know, you're one degree off at the beginning, and as you go hundreds and hundreds of years, now you're way over here when really you should have been back here. So we come at Scripture from a literal perspective, and as we've been reading here, even in a, uh, in a few short verses, it says over and over again, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, and a thousand years for that matter that comes after Jesus Christ has come in glory to the earth. That tells me that Jesus comes before the period of a thousand years, and so I ought to look at Scripture that way differently than what the amillennial and the postmillennial view suggest. Now, if we accept then the millennial reign as a literal 1,000 years, then we need to begin to look at the other events that come along with this as literal events. Now, what is intended to be accomplished during the time of the millennial reign? Well, it's a time when there is a literal kingdom on earth, Jesus sitting on the throne, in a time when Israel is fully restored, okay? So Israel plays into the millennial reign in a key way. Why? Well, because there are covenants that are to be upheld still with Israel. If we look, for example, at Jeremiah, let's look at Jeremiah. In Jeremiah in chapter 31, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming. This is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. There has not yet come a time when this has been experienced by Israel, yet this is a covenant that God made with them. Look elsewhere at Genesis, in Genesis in chapter 28, a familiar covenant uh, in Genesis 28, verses 13 through 14. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Has Israel experienced the fullness of that covenant yet? Have they inhabited the land that God had sworn to them? No, the answer is no. They've not been there yet. They've not, uh, they've not inhabited the land to that full extent. Look also at the prophet Amos. In Amos in uh, 
Amos chapter 9 verses 14 through 15, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And so there's an Abrahamic covenant that still needs to be fulfilled as it pertains to the nation Israel. That's part of what will occur during this literal kingdom for a thousand years. There's also a Davidic covenant that's to be fulfilled, right? Uh, consider for a moment uh, Isaiah chapter 9, a passage of scripture that we so often look at. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Have we experienced the government of this world being upon the shoulders of Jesus to this point? If we say that the, the world is his and the fullness of it, that everything ultimately belongs to God who is seated on a throne, well then sure. But I don't think we've experienced the justice the judgment that will occur under a government led by Jesus. And so there's a Davidic covenant to be fulfilled during this time. Uh, there, there's a covenant for the land. There's a covenant for the government. Now here's some other fun things that are going to be happening during the time of the millennium of which we will be a part. In Ezekiel, really in chapters 40 through 48, so we won't read that. Praise the Lord tonight, right? What will be built during the time of the millennium? Anybody know? A temple. And what will happen in that temple? It's not that hard. What happens normally in the temple? Sacrifices. Sacrifices will occur during the millennial reign in the temple. Why? Why do you suppose sacrifices will occur in the temple during that time? I mean, if we think about the former sacrificial system and the fact that Jesus has now come and now Jesus is sitting ruling over this, why would we have sacrifices? Any, any guesses? What do we, or why, do we take communion? We remember, right? For as often as you do this, you proclaim my death until I come. A little bit different during the millennial reign, but it's believed most scholars agree that the temple sacrifices will occur during that time as a way to continually point back for a thousand years. Over and over again, he died for us. He died for us. The one who is seated on the throne, he died for us. To keep our minds fixed on what it is that he has done for us. There's a whole bunch of other things that are happening at this time. We're going to have to move through them quickly here, okay? Isaiah. Let's look again in Isaiah in chapter 35. I don't hear that many pages turning. Here we go. Go. Isaiah 35, 1 through 2. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. During the millennial reign, everything is going to be changed. The curse upon the earth will be lifted. We will see even the wilderness changed, and in many respects, at the glory at which it once was in Isaiah in chapter 30, just a few chapters earlier, Isaiah 30 verses 23 through 24. Then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed 
with the shovel and fan. You see, there's that agrarian uh, culture again, right? I mean, here it says that there's going to be uh, oxen and, and donkeys that are working the ground, that there's going to be plenty of rain, that the ground is going to be fruitful. That's one of the greatest challenges for any of us today trying to grow something is figuring out how do we get this thing watered properly and uh, what's the right amount of water and the earth is going to care for itself the way it was intended to. Uh, Several chapters earlier in Isaiah in chapter 11, Isaiah 11 verses 6 through 7, the wolf also, now this is the key thing here because some of you thought, well, okay, uh, so there's oxen. And there's lamb, which, which means there's some good lamb chops still available for me in the millennium, right? There's a good steak that maybe I could have. Well, not so fast. Okay, Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 7. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea. This is going to be different, right? This is going to be very different. Now, some people still think, well, if the sacrificial system is happening, are we able to eat meat during this time? And you can debate it. In the long run, in the new heaven and new earth, I say no, I... I'm not going to argue with you on the millennial reign, but if meat's that important to you, well, we've got to talk about some other things, right? Uh, let's look elsewhere. Um, Micah. Let's check out quickly here. Micah chapter 4, another passage that many of you know very well, right? Where is it at? Micah chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, so this is also said in Isaiah chapter 2, and it's mentioned here again, and, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I should think about that for a minute. Neither shall they learn war anymore, but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. No one shall make them afraid. We need some of that hope right now. How about Malachi? Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. <clears throat> For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Close by in Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. Somebody said, man, I've never been to Zephaniah before. Check that out. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. For then I will restore to the peoples. Listen, this is interesting. I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. That one's interesting. That suggests to us that in the millennial reign, all will speak the same tongue. Now, it talks about in the throne room of heaven, every tribe every nation, every tongue. So that suggests to us too that it's not that there's an aspect of a, a native tongue being lost, but this, this really starts to open up doors even into the idea of speaking in tongues, of having a prayer language, of praying in tongues, right? Because one of the, one of the, the best ways it was ever described to me in terms of this idea of praying in tongues is 
who said God's native tongue was English, right? I mean, it's kind of an interesting way to look at it in terms of like, well, yeah, I suppose so. It's not that God can't understand that, but as I'm praying, as I'm crying out to him, maybe there is a pure tongue that I can converse with him with. That's a common tongue. What was the case before the Tower of Babel? They all spoke a common language, right? But because in their pride and they had built something that they thought they were so great, God said, no, I'm going to confuse their language and separate them. So whatever that language was, and we're speaking God. Now some people say, yes, it's going to be Hebrew. So for all those people who wanted to, have always wanted to learn Hebrew, maybe, it's, maybe that's it. We don't know. If it's Hebrew, get ready to work on your ha. You know, those types of things. You're like a ha. Practice clearing your throat, okay? That's essential. Essential for Hebrew. Ezekiel. A couple more. Just a couple more. Going back. Oh, Ezekiel. In chapters 37, 27 and 28. Ezekiel 37, verse 27 and 28. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. One more going back. Let's go to Zechariah, Zephaniah, Zechariah. Actually, it's Haggai in between. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10 through 13. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I dwell, I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Interesting one here, verse 11, many nations shall be joined. Do you know, especially within our culture today, you heard a little bit of this if you joined in for the Q&A on Tuesday morning, the idea of race is, is that doesn't really exist. That's, that's, a, that's a silly concept. We've sort of developed that. Um, the idea of race, in fact, has been largely propagated by those who have sought to discriminate against a particular people. Uh, ethnicity, nations, has long been the proper way in which people have been identified in a, in a fair way, an, an, an equitable way to say, hey, this is, you, know, you have different nations and uh, we can't, and again, I don't want to totally go down this path tonight, but it's... Um, I want to be careful. I don't want to suggest that somebody's entirely foolish when they say this, but oftentimes we hear things like, well, I'm just colorblind, right? Well, come on. It doesn't, it's not too hard for us to look around and go, well, you look a little different than I look. That doesn't necessarily mean anything other than look at God's design, especially when we consider people and how they're designed. And if in fact they do look slightly different or if the color of their skin is different, that it's not just some arbitrary thing. It's an incredible aspect of God's design for where people lived and, and the environment in which they lived and the, and the weather in which they uh, had to live in and all these different things. That's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And so that's why it made sense for us to go, well, these are the nations, okay? So it's man and sin who has brought this idea of race and then racism and everything else. And I mention that here to say that, look at verse 11, many nations, different people, shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. All together, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Let's go back to Revelation as we close out here tonight. <clears throat> in Revelation in chapter 20. Now comes the time here then at the end of the millennium, the end of that thousand year time, 
And it says, now when the thousand years have expired, again, I'm struggling to find that as figurative. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now that's an incredibly depressing passage of scripture. And should certainly, at the very least, give us pause as we consider those who are lost today. But the wonderful thing about it is that what follows is two chapters that are all about how God makes all things new. And we'll consider that next week as we look at the new heaven and the new earth. The fact is, though, here there is a, I believe, a literal thousand years. Jesus will come in glory prior to that time, and we will reign with him along with the tribulation saints for the period of thousand years. What will we do during that time? I don't know exactly. In the millennial reign, as, as we sort of looked at there, but didn't go into a ton of detail, we only we more so looked at just what was going to be happening during that time. Change of creation of the, of the wilderness, of animals, of, of a kingdom that's been established. But there's going to be people during this time that are going to inhabit the earth during the millennial reign. Uh, those will be people who are brought in from the time of the tribulation. Those who uh, believed on Jesus will enter into the uh, tribulation period Again, an innumerable number uh, from the nation of Israel who will inhabit the earth during this time as a fulfillment of the covenants. And we'll be there and we'll be reigning with the tribulation saints. Again, not sure exactly what it is that we'll be doing during that time. And they'll continue to fill the earth for a period of a thousand years. That's a lot of population increase that can happen once again during that time. Now, a lot of people say, well, man, why is it that Satan is loosed at the end of that time? Why again? Why, why go through all of this again only for fire to come down from heaven and, and utterly destroy them? Well, the fact is, at that point, Satan had yet to be destroyed. And remember, what's the point of that literal thousand years? It's the fulfillment of the covenant. God is good to his word. And so he's going to give people the opportunity to experience what it is that he promised, the land that he promised, the rule that he promised. But it goes to show that until Everything is completely made new. Man's heart is still wicked. And so there are some who will, even after that time, even after generations of living under the rule of Jesus Christ, some will still be deceived by Satan and will fall away. But it's at that point then that God will say, okay, it's done. I've made good on everything that I've told you I was going to do because his promises never fail. Okay? And in his infinite grace and his mercy gives people chance after chance after chance. And then at that time, the great white throne judgment, and then what we'll enter in is the new heaven and a new earth of which we will be a part of for all of eternity, those who believe on Jesus Christ. What do we do in the meantime? We've continued to look at this in terms of how do we live in light of his, in light of his return. Look at, if you will, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for, amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pause here this evening, and we thank you once again, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the understanding that you've given us here tonight, and I pray, Lord, that that would continue, that we'd have conversation about this, that we'd discuss this, Lord, that we would be obedient to what your scripture says, that we should be informed about these things, not ignorant, Lord, that we should study these things, that we should be always, Lord, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing. Lord, we trust and believe, I pray for each of us, Lord, that uh, we are not appointed for wrath, that indeed you will come for your bride and spare us from the tribulation that awaits this world. And that, Lord, we will return with you in glory and enjoy your presence, not only for a thousand-year reign, but for all of eternity. And so, Lord, uh, instill, Lord, and strengthen and just build that that faith and that hope within us, Lord, because of the times in which we are living, Lord, uh, can at many times, Lord, feel quite perilous, uh, can bring fear, can bring anxiety. Lord, if our anchor is properly cast into that throne room of heaven and fixed there, Lord, And that's what we can look to. That's what we can hold on to. And and so, Lord, help each of us with that. Father, I pray for each of these here tonight as they follow after you, Lord. Um, Solidify this hope in their hearts. Keep their eyes fixed on you, Lord, I pray. And give us an excitement for and anticipation uh, for this wonderful time that you have promised to us. We ask all this, Lord, tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week. So make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.